Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance. The Stevens Center is the premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and I am an NBA candidate at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, I chat with Stuart Sopp, founder and CEO of Current. Current is a leading U.S.-based challenger bank, which enables access to affordable and premium financial services to people traditionally overlooked by the banking industry. We cover his journey from being a senior FX trader at the world's top institutions through the founding and hyper-growth of Current. We also discuss his company's crowded industry landscape, how COVID-19 has impacted his business, Current's competitive advantage, and some candid advice for entrepreneurs. Let's get started. So hello, Stuart, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you as a guest. Thanks, Ryan. It's uh, great to be here. So to get started, could you just give us a brief background of yourself and take us to about 2015 when you decided to start Current? Wow, that, that's, that's a long time. I'm 43 as of last week. So, uh, you know, you could get some history here, but um, I, used to, uh, I used to be a trader. I, I graduated in London, England, 1999 in aeronautical engineering. Got a little master's there and realized in, in the UK, at least with the dot-com boom, a lot of friends were sort of pivoting out into, into the first wave of, of the internet uh, companies. And also some financial engineering was going on, as we all know, from 2008. And I realized that engineers, whilst very smart, were getting paid nothing compared to everyone else. And so uh, the capitalist in me wanted to make sure I was uh, applying myself and so that um, you know, I could uh, gain the most value out of all the, out of all the effort I was putting in. And I, uh, I, I squared away that, the, those hopes and dreams of building planes and rockets and uh, joined a bank in 1999, RBS. Royal Bank of Scotland over in Lombard Street, sort of the home of banking. I spent a few years there and actually got sold very, very early on. Quick story, I got sold to Bank of New York Mellon. Never heard of them. It was Bank of New York back then as a graduate. I was on the graduate scheme. They carved out the trust bank of, of RBS that I was rotating through. And that was my first job. Was first experience in banking was then moving to Canary Wharf, which is a very different place back then. And then I specialized after that graduate scheme into, into trading. I really thought that I could apply a mathematical slash uh, physics background, uh, applied math background towards what was then largely uh, a very inefficient market. It was the crossover, early 90s, early 2000s, crossover uh, and digitization of financial markets. So I was in this sort of space, and you'll see a lot of mechanics or engineers, graduates who are very conversant, they can conversate in sort of a technical fashion, but then also sort of apply themselves towards real solutions. So um, I felt like I was very, uh, very well placed, and and so I had a career of foreign exchange and short-term interest rates, uh, trading and specialization. And then, as you make more money, you sort of get paid more, and to justify it, they give you more and more people to manage. And so uh, I moved to um, Deutsche Bank, which was the Goldman Sachs of of the two thousands in foreign exchange. Sydney, Citibank, Singapore, and then that's where I sort of. I'm a manager. I was running foreign exchange for 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 Asia there, G10, and then 2008 happened. Great personal personal reset in in wealth. I I, joined, I converted my stock in Deutsche from I think it was like 90 euros to to 30 dollars in Citibank, and then within 
nine months. It was less than a dollar. So you can imagine, it doesn't matter how much money you had, it's one thirtieth. You're going to need to work your butt off to uh, make that money back. So, you know, no, no one should be crying for any traders. Like we took the risk and, 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 and all the rest of it. Um, not that we were part of that particular crisis. And then I realized I needed to get my, um, my sort of uh, affairs in order. And then Morgan Stanley offered me a job in, in Hong Kong shortly after to run um, Asia for, uh, foreign exchange and uh, short-term interest rates. And then I moved to, to New York. And, and since moving to New York, I felt like that was the end of my, uh, my career as a trader in 2014, 2015. And so I've had a great run. There have been great banks and very intelligent people. The bank in the industry uh, you know, really continued to draw a lot of talent. Um, and that started to change post-2008, 2009. You could really see the smartest people not joining banks and actually joining uh, uh, tech firms over on the West Coast. Wow. So you've been around the world and touched on just about every bank on the street. It seems you made the right choice after graduating. So shifting to current, how did you get started and what was the inspiration? Yeah, it's a it's a weird story and it's not one that's neat. The, the, um, you hear like, you know, solve, solve problems for yourself and have this neat story where you stumbled across something and you found this problem and all this. So that didn't ha- that did not happen with me. Uh, I looked at uh, Bitcoin in 2010, 2011, a young uh, analyst in Morgan Stanley on the trading desk showed me the white paper then very early on. He is now the CTO of Current, by the way, Trevor Marshall, and and got me really interested in sort of the light bulb came on with that the nature what money is is fundamentally changing it's going from digital digital money which we already have with the fed and all the rest of the banking industry to programmable money and it may take some time but that was going to be a big change and then also on top of that mobile distribution will probably change uh, the landscape once more as the long tail of banks 4700 banks here in america probably struggle to convert themselves to mobile first and mobile first acquisition distribution and, and all the rest of it and so a couple of big sort of tectonic plates were moving. And then in my sort of travels, talking to these, uh, what I could only call as anarchists, I was the only guy with a suit and tie in these Bitcoin days. And they all talked about lowering the bar to entry uh, for financial services. And it, it just, I didn't understand it. I'm an English guy, I travel around the world, I've had phenomenal banking, personal banking experience, not just, not just professional in Asia. And, uh, and just didn't understand. And then looking into it, I realized the horrific nature of what was happening here. You, in America, have archaic infrastructure uh, because of the state system. It's very, it's very anti-fragile in many ways, but not having a sort of coalesced and standardized way of deploying infrastructure actually holds back a lot of, a lot of development. And, and really, the private sector is there to fill in the gaps. And so just seeing that there was a large amount of people, 100 to 130 million people in America living paycheck to paycheck, paying hundreds of dollars a month, uh, sorry, a year on financial services that effectively should be free. And so I thought that was a really interesting problem and also saw some of the neobanks or challenger banks, whatever you want to call them, in, in Europe sort of springing up in sort of 2013, 14, 15. And I just thought, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. There's a bunch of these sort of plates moving if no one else is going to do it, I'll give it a go. Certainly a unique story, maybe a less traditional path to fintech. So how did you go about your initial fundraising for the business and choosing your investors at the start? Yeah, this, this whole idea, this notion of choosing your investors is insane to me. I, I hear about it all the time. I think that's about people based in the Valley and or previous founders. And I think choosing investors is, is sort of like 
this uh, this sort of like pinnacle of of being needed. I, I've never really chosen many investors. I have I have sought investment, and we have agreed on good business metrics, unit economics, and and, and those kind of things. I met a guy called Garrett Camp, co-founder of Uber, back there in 2015. I met a bunch of people in those years, in that you know formative fintech years here in New York, and really just discussing him with him what the future of banking could look like. I did, and I still do believe there is a heavy component of uh, cryptocurrencies and and all the rest of it and and infrastructure, um, but really it was too soon. And so when I was talking to him, you know, we were saying, "Hey, this is a two or three But really, if you know, to get up and running and to solve the same problems, you don't, you shouldn't use technology just because you can. You should use it because it solves a good problem, and it's efficient and cost effective and all the rest of it. And so we really backed up the truck and said, "Okay, let's use modern technology stuff that you know social networks um, have, have pioneered and developed, much in the same way cell phone uh, companies um, pioneer and develop um, hardware and push the boundary uh, on those things." We could utilize these things and, and and provide a 10x experience, you know, faster, more responsive, more resilient, and also you know, 10 to 100x more cost efficient. So, you know, really looking at sort of meeting sort of formative people um, who saw the same kind of landscape earlier on. And so he was the the seed investor, and obviously, you know, having built StumbleUpon and, and Uber was a great resource in the early days. And then in terms of just others, I mean, it, it sort of follows success, follows success, and then. Obviously, Nigel Morris and Frank Rotman. Nigel Morris, co-founder of Capital One, uh, and and Frank worked right there alongside him for many, many years, and still does in in their venture arm. Led our Series A, and obviously they brought, you know, Garrett brought and his team um, uh, brought, uh, you know, deep technical expertise that I needed as a pivoting from my career. Like I really needed to learn how to build, and they helped there. And then in terms of the Series A onwards, there was a deep. Um, bank building knowledge. You know, I had no retail experience, right? I was a trader. <laughs> so, and so uh, they were very gracious. And I just got off the phone with Nigel just now. So very gracious with his time and and, and helping uh, helping the company forward. And then our Series B, Wellington uh, Asset Management, very large East Coast name, uh, crossover funds and, and such, and, and and very good at growth equity, taking companies into IPO stage. So really. I guess I'm a long-winded way of saying I self-select by my character and who I am and what we're building. And in a very much investment is about, you know, to coin a cliche, very much dating. And if you don't like the person, the founder, then the investors are probably, you know, it has to be an exceptional business. It has to be like a Facebook one in a hundred business for you to sort of bite your tongue and invest if you hate that person, right? So really there is a lot of uh, soft nuances and, and EQ that goes around in investing. Now, digging to Current a bit further, could you kind of just walk us through what Current is and, and how the product works? What Current is? Well, Current's mission is to improve financial outcomes for our um, members and their unique lives. And what does that mean? Well, when you sort of wind back what banks do, right? Banks accumulate deposits. And until very recently, their mission statements were to give maximized shareholder value and all these sort of very clinical, sterile kind of mission objectives, which by the way, if you look, you know, that's, I guess that's what they have done with all the stock buybacks and all that stuff, but it feels very cold to the user. And, and, and if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and I say, I say once again, 100 to 130 million people are living like this 50 odd thousand dollars per household, all the money. And what that means is you get paid on a Friday and you work at Walmart and all the money that you've earned for that week then instantly goes out of your bank account to pay for bills 
it pays your friends back, you know, any any payday landing or loans you, you've just had, uh, get the groceries, things like that. And it's instantly gone. Literally, 98% of that money is gone. And there's not much discretionary spend at all because it's, you know, $1,200 a week, uh, a month or something. And so for a bank that optimizes and their KPI, their lending businesses, right? And they, they fund those lending businesses by taking deposits, take the spread. It's called net interest margin. So... Uh, for them, their KPI is deposits. Now, these users, which are hundred, you know, a third of America now, don't fall into a useful bracket for them, right? So now they have high technology costs of servicing and acquisition, yet they can't monetize. And so what they do is they, they, they have high fixed fees, overdraft fees, and all this other sort of hidden costs of, of, of finance and sort of pay lip service to uh, underbanked, underserved, and helping people out. And, and it's just, it's not their fault in, in many ways. They've just optimized for something that is not there. And so for us, what current is, we were like, okay, how do we align ourselves with customers? Firstly, let's try and improve their financial outcomes. Let's try and make them money. Let's, if we make money, let's, hope, let's be aligned with them and, and hopefully we can make some, but let's make them money. Let's make them richer. Um, and this is a whole wealth and equality arc in America right now, because every time you hit the QE button or the print button, asset price inflation happens, right? And those assets, uh, stock, shares, whatever, tend to go up, as we've seen, in an unfair sort of uh, duality to the real economy. There's a lot of people out of work, you know, 36 million, yet we're seeing a V-shaped recovery here. Why? Because all that money is going through the financial system, and it's been held in the financial system, and they're going to buy assets that return, right? They're not going to go and build stuff. They're not going to go and hire people. That doesn't go, they're terrible at lending, right? Banks are terrible at lending, as we've seen from the PPP. And so uh, you've got this sort of whole tranche of people and ever-growing that, that live paycheck to paycheck, don't have assets, they have debts. And so when you do asset price inflation, they get help left behind. And the financial services industry are a large part of that problem, right? So they're ostracizing or taking money out of their bank account and making them poorer or making them less well-off and not giving them access to things that inflate. And so you get this, this striation. And we're seeing it across the world. Of course, how this ends, it could be terrible, right? Uh, and so we thought, okay, if we could build this new current core, this tech stack that was deposit agnostic, meaning we don't go and get deposits, we don't want that KPI, we'll be spend-centric, meaning we'll, we'll try and save the money, we'll try and give the money back, we'll try and you know, get deals, points, services, and try and save money in every way possible and give all that value and the majority of that value back to the customer. Could we then put hundreds of dollars back into their bank account and then eventually um, get them into assets that potentially inflate. That's been our roadmap. That's what current is. And so our first sort of multi-stage rocket, I guess, the first part was building the core technology 2015 to 2016, 17. By the way, I don't advise anyone building tech without any users ever again. My investors were deeply unsatisfied without any growth for two years, but uh, it's paying dividends now. And so we built our own banking core. What does that mean? It means we have the ledger record. It means that we have the database where all the money is. And we do all the network decisioning. We do ACH origination, natural file passing, all this other stuff that, that, that typically banks do uh, in a much more efficient, cost-efficient way. Now, just to give you an idea of, of, of the, the cost efficiencies, a typical regional bank or community bank would spend somewhere in the region of 9 to $12 a month just servicing an open account per month in technology costs alone, right? So imagine what you need as a fixed fee or an overdraft fee just to maintain those open accounts. And for us, um, we've driven that into the sort of low uh, double-digit cents, sort of like 15, 16 cents a month. So really, we don't care. We keep the account as long as you want. Don't do anything with it. We're fine. 
And of course, what that does is it aligns you with customers who are gig economy workers who get collateralized infrequently, but also teenagers, young people don't have much money. And so we launched our, our, uh, our first product back in 2017 was focused on teenagers. And the reason why was one, defensibility. Most banks didn't, you know, they can't afford to bank teenagers for these reasons I've just stipulated. Two, it's top of funnel. If you know anything about funnel building, if you get someone early at the top of funnel, it's normally cheaper, it's normally more sticky, you build brand awareness and all that stuff. And then three, we were building our own tech and we didn't have much capability back in 2016, 17. We could really only swipe a card and do a few other things. And, and, and so really, if we had gone after a 40-year-old who wanted credit cards and wire transfers and FX, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to do it. We would have lost. And so we went really young because the, the demand for financial services was very low, or at least the parents as well. And so we launched that back then. And so what it means to be current has been to the consumer at times changing and, and sort of amorphous. Uh, for us, it's been a roadmap. And so we have, have built multiple things at multiple times to sort of grow into the shoes that we've sort of set early on. Um, and that includes brand and, and our voice and our message and who does what at current. And so that's been super interesting. We launched our full checking account with full service capabilities at the beginning of last year. And that's done um, fantastically well, you know, in terms of payments, uh, sorry, in terms of features, why people bank at current, all that tech stack stuff that I just mentioned, what that enables us to do is product innovation and also liquidity management. And we own all of that ourselves. It's all on balance sheet and it's all our own innovation. And so if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you, you typically get paid on that Friday, we pay you on a Wednesday when we see that file. We don't sit on the file like other, another bank for the effective date where the money's in their bank and they own interest, park it at the Fed overnight. We take our balance sheet and we go and give that, that paycheck back to that user. It's employment or employer fraud, uh, fraud slash credit, I should say. So uh, we've not seen one uh, employer, even over the crisis, hit us in a negative way. So we're extremely happy with that. With that, with that extension of credit. And so what that does is it gets people's money in their hands quicker. And you'll be like, well, what does it matter? If you get paid on Friday, getting paid on every Wednesday doesn't matter. You know, you get a one-off two-day hit. And I hear that a lot from affluent people who I talk to. And what they don't understand is, is that liquidity management is important because when you're living on the line every day, literally every day, you don't know if you have enough to get home, don't have enough to eat dinner, all this other stuff. You'll have a cell phone bill, you have an electricity bill, you need your friend, pay your friends back. And a lot of those bills come with late penalty fees and notices, right? And so like, you don't want to get another $35 on the cell phone as a late penalty fee, and you don't want the gas and electricity to be shut off and all this other stuff. So you're continually paying off one versus the other to minimize your fee breakdown. And that uh, equates to hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And if you think of that as a percentage of what they earn in a year, it's massive, significant, huge. So, so that's the reason why that's important. And then in liquidity management features, we do gas hold crediting or uh, long story short, you use your, uh, your credit card at the gas station. You don't know what's happening, but what happens is they, uh, they take some money and withhold a, basically a full tank of gas off your credit limit, 75 to $125. If you use a debit card, it's real money. It's not your credit limit coming down. Uh, it's real money. And so if you're driving Uber or Lyft or whatever, and you're living paycheck to paycheck, and you're filling up 10 bucks here, 20 bucks there, and they're withholding and taking out 75 bucks each time, well, you're always out this money, right? And that equates to 
lots of liquidity and, and meals and all the rest of it and getting home. So we credit that back instantly as well. And we have other things like an overdraft facility called Overdrive, um, gives 50 to 100 bucks to people um, in between checks, uh, no fee, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right? We could go on and on, but I'll shut up there and you can ask some questions. No, this is great insight. Is there a current feature that you have found to be the most sticky? For sure, it's it's getting your paycheck early, right? So banks, you know, the business is pretty simple, even for fintechs that are core banking. It's like you, you're aligning yourself with an employer, right? So we basically bank the employees of Walmart, Amazon, DoorDash, Instacart, USPS, uh, Army, the military, nurses. So uh, effectively, everyone who's been classed as an essential worker in the last two months, current has been banking for you know several years, and so we've been very lucky. You know, this was all dumb luck, right? Like we just banked the people that were ostracized and we could potentially help, and so they became you know the most important demographic to this country, keeping it you know working and alive over the last two three months, and we were just very much at the forefront of that story, which is which was great. Yeah, so so transitioning to that point, especially you know the last few months with COVID, how how has your business changed uh, over the last few months? It's changed because we're working from home. So if you hear my newborn son scream, I apologize, or a cat, or uh, well, a fire engine uh, on the ladder thirty three here. So so working from home has been a challenge uh, for everyone for lots of different reasons. If you're single and young and living on your own, that can be fairly uh, depressing. And if you've got like a big family and you've got young kids running around and now you're the teacher, uh, you're, the, you're the caregiver, uh, you know, father or whatever, mother, and also working, that can be extremely stressful. You, you know, your workload is kind of 4X. So, so mental health awareness is of paramount importance. That's really important. And also just workflow and productivity uh, improvements uh, have, been, um, have been critical. We've been working on those last two or three months in terms of our customers you know they did pretty well right they got stimulus checks a lot of people in unemployment got paid more than they were on an hourly wage that says a lot about the minimum wage in america and how ridiculously low it is i am by no means a socialist but like even i can tell you that it doesn't make any sense to just pay you know if there's a mismatch and they're defaulting and and all the rest of it it doesn't make any sense for for all of us to pay fraud fees and all this other stuff we pay inadvertently, very much similar to the healthcare debate that we had uh, with Obama. And, and so uh, anyway, they, they, we've seen like consumption difference with the business. We've hired actually, we've not furloughed anyone. We didn't take the PPP. Uh, we certainly considered it, but we didn't. And we were doing very well and took equity capital. I think that's the right move. So that was interesting, raising around in the middle of this thing, having a newborn baby, moving the the, the company to work from home and then just dealing with scale, right? Uh, so that there were some really significant challenges for me personally, for the team and the, and the company as a whole, and also our consumers, our members, you know, changed, their lives changed. I do think, you know, the, as much as everyone's drawing straight lines with pandemic here, we've had pandemics before and, you know, multiple times in the last hundred years. And, you know, we haven't been walking around with masks for the last 50. So we will bounce back. How the world looks will be more like what it looked like last year than what everyone is drawing forward this year. People will resume normal life eventually. 
And yeah, I'm sure we will live with this virus for, for many, many years. And I'm sure we will have vaccines towards the end of this year and next year and, and all the rest of it. So my view is, is that the company has, this, this virus has been an accelerant of business and strategy. Clearly, digital was here for e-com, for finance, for healthcare. Uh, it, it has only accelerated those trends and really highlighted the winners. Luckily, we are one of them. And then, you know, a lot of the field, you know, fintech got very noisy for, for many years, very, very much similar to crypto, right? It got very noisy pretty quick. And really what you're left with is the sort of real players now. So I think in terms of the space and a competitive nature, um, it has really clarified for potential investors who, who is investable and who's not. Have there been any specific, you know, kind of work style habits or changes that you and your team have found effective when managing this transition uh, to work from home? That's a good question. I have stopped taking every call as a video call fairly early on. I find video, and so thankfully this is not one of them. I find video calls a bigger cognitive load. I don't know why. I just do. And I think other people feel the same. And so voice calls allow me to sort of walk around think and, and be more expressive, but then really concentrate on what is being asked of me. I, th- I tend to find that video comes with a bunch of information that you don't really need other than the person is there, which you can get from voice. And to be honest, a lot more Google Docs, right? Collaborative working there. And also just making sure that there's ownership. There always is ownership at current, like we're a data first company, but really just hammering that home uh, that that we're you know a KPI focused an OKR focused company and and you know there's no sort of no reason for slippage, and so and so productivity has been uh, you know around working with the tools we got. There are no new tools we're using other than Zoom. I suspect that there's going to be a plethora of productivity tools coming out uh, over the next year that will solve some of these problems. Because um, we you know I can probably tell you three things I need right now, and someone else is going to going to go and build them. Yeah, and I, I saw you recently made a new hire, uh, senior VP of finance as well. How, how did you manage that process remotely? And more importantly, how did you integrate the employee after hiring? Yeah, poor David. He's, 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 he's awesome. He's actually flying to New York. He's in the airport hotel now, and he's flying to New York tomorrow with his family, family, young kid and, and wife. Good, you know, good on him, right? Like massive risk, really, given, you know, he's from San Fran. He's an accomplished finance professional, you know, HBS plus. Uh, Goldman and all the rest of it, been on the buy side. So knows this space well. So it probably gives you a hint at some of our economics and the opportunity that was offered. <laughs> so there's a, there's a good signal in there for us as a company and me as a CEO. But also on him, I mean, great, you know, hats off to him because it, it's damn scary. When he signed the deal, it was mid-COVID. It was like end of March. So like he took a risk. He's a risk taker, which is, is great to see and in a good way that you'd want to see from a head of finance. And uh, in terms of like that, you know, how we did that, I had, you know, we've been courting for months, right? So, you know, like, just like investing, senior hires need many, many months uh, to go through the ringer, make sure that there's alignment and uh, culture fit and all the rest of it. And so I'd met him once or twice and so felt better about taking the plunge uh, mid-March or just end of March. And I would say the same for investors. So, you know, VCs, you'll see VC Twitter saying we're open for business. It's just a damn lie. And, and, it sh- and you know, there's no reason why they should have been open for business in March and April because they did not know what the future was holding. They should not be saying those things because they just weren't. And, and many people, the, actually the bigger problem that, we're, that we're, everyone will be experiencing right now will be if you haven't met an investor in person, I've met luckily 
hundreds of these people over five years, right? I've met everyone, right? Everyone knows who I am. I got a big beard and long hair. They don't forget it. And so, uh, and so I'm lucky in that way. I've met a lot of people who can say, oh, shit, you know, I met this guy you know, back in 2018 or whatever. But if you're a young startup professional and you're trying to make things work, uh, you're trying to get to a Series A, you, you know, you're in New York and you've got to get to San Fran. I mean, how the hell do you do that? Because they're, they're very unlikely investors to invest in someone they've never met in person and they kind of want to see your office and that office probably doesn't exist anymore. So I feel like the VC community as well as the hiring um, procedure needs to adapt a little bit if this is more persistent because at the moment I feel like everyone is holding their breath. Everyone's holding their breath and saying, you know what, I probably can travel next month or the month after and we'll just catch up, right? We'll do that thing. What happens if that doesn't exist? There's going to be a capitulation on process. There's going to be a, a bunch of weird stuff happening. So that's always in the back of my mind is I was, I, we've had, by the way, three people in the last two weeks who I've never met personally. So we've already adapted our process, but I'm just saying a large amount of VCs, investment community, and some companies are kind of holding their breath and I think they should just get on with it. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few months. And if any technology that you mentioned is able to help them out in that process. But, but changing gears a bit, is, is, it seems that there's a new fintech sprouting up every day, as well as a different incumbent launching a new product. How do you view current kind of competitive landscape at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so competitive, right? Like, and it should be because there's 4,700 banks, 5,000 credit unions, all have balance sheet, most of them profitable. That's just the incumbents. And then you have like what I would say the sort of three classes of um, new players. One is bank first, like a like a current, a Viro, Chime, um, those kind of guys. And then you have the people who are like feature first. We're sort of banking core first. Feature first, meaning you're a PFM, savings app, that kind of thing. Now you stuck a card on it, call yourself a bank. And then thirdly, you've got the uh, foreigners. You got, well, not foreign to me, but you know, number 26, Monza, these kind of guys, all people from Europe. I put them in a different category because they do work in a completely different way. They have a, they've grown up in a different environment and they're you know, thinking they can exploit the same kind of edge that they have in Europe to, to the US, and that's clearly not working. Um, I would, by the way, in the first category, put Square and Venmo and PayPal in there as well. So, so not only we got like three by three matrix, whatever, and everyone is well-funded, very smart people, terribly competitive. And even knowing that, it didn't really put me off because execution is everything. No one was building their own banking core. Not one of them. We're the only, we're the only guys that did that. So not too worried about that because what you're seeing in this crisis is uh, a focus on unit economics. And so the companies with the down rounds and the firings and the rifts and all that stuff, what they did was they hired and they appeared to look like they had more success and growth than they had. And, you know, uh, the tide went out and uh, and you can see what you can see. And so the tide went out on, you know, over current and everyone saw something extremely valuable. So we have done, you know, obviously very well in this and we will continue to do very well in this. And then you've seen some movement in the B2B space. So the B2B fintech space is a large reason. And it was funded by like VC community and all the rest of it because they, they got more, they didn't know who to back as a winner uh, in the in the core banking space, like literally, Chime w- was spinning their wheels for years before they broke out, and, and we're almost the same, right? Like we're four, nearly five years in, breaking out now, and uh, and, and and really, the the West Coast community just they didn't know how to judge 
the finance space. They really still don't, in my view. And so their shortcut was to 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 really fund the B2B space. And what that did was it gave picks and shovels to everyone, and it's sort of like a Hunger Games, as you know, right? Everyone with a MBA uh, pitch deck and a Marketa contract is like, oh, I'm a bank now, right? Two hundred grand. And and so and and so really that created a lot of noise. And so the clarity that those investors was that they were hoping for from those B two B investments really really made it a lot worse. So so um, and so really I've been it's been fairly easy for for us at current at least to cut through that noise to investors. They can see the quality difference and and sort of the the strategic difference. And and at the end of the day, when you get to growth equity money, they just care about the money, right? They care about your unit economics. What is your LTV? What is your CAC? What is what is your servicing of these customers? How long are they hanging out for? And so um, if you don't own your own tech and you're paying third parties, hand over fist is what they take and your firstborn. You don't have a business. They have a business. The B2B guys have the business, right? And so if you really think about it, it's kind of perverse because it's basically some VCs Funding B two B, taking money off other VCs who are funding those seed startups, kind of crazy. But yeah, the the TLDR is there's a lot of competition. Commoditized spaces really go to the lowest cost provider, and brand matters and entry matters. And we're the only guys that really have focused on both of those, which is a technology enabled demographic differentiation. Hopefully, that kind of answered it. Yeah, that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, and then what, what do you do to stay informed on such a dynamic industry, especially with so many new players popping up seemingly every day? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a trader, right? Uh, back in the day, so there was far more variables in the world trading macro than there are in this space. So to me, this is a bit of a break. So it's easy to, to really, the, the real secret there is not to get too close to anything, get too close or too, you know, XYZ company raises this much money with this feature. I mean, if you really cared, you'd never build anything. The thing that has kept us out of trouble is having, well, my view is strong views, weekly health, have a view, make it sure, make sure it's strong enough with conviction, and then assess the environment as you go along. Because what you, what you ascertain as, a, as an opportunity in 2015, it may be completely different in 2017, just because there's new dynamics, new players, new external factors in 2020 with the pandemic and all this other stuff. So the key is to have optionality to be flexible, but to drive ahead when you know that you're right, you should definitely double down. And when you think you may not be right, maybe back up and reassess your strategy. And I think that has kept us out of trouble many times. I know you mentioned it a little bit in the, in the previous question, um, but what have been some of the challenges that, that you faced pivoting from a career in, in sales and trading to kind of managing a leading fintech company? Yeah, I mean, I just didn't know what I was doing. I was like really quite simple. I the, a lot of skills that I learned in trading were, were very applicable to to building a company, and the macro. First off, just the most obvious one was the macro environment and the macro view. I had a macro view on how this would all play out, and it's kind of working out that way. So so that's good, right? We had a strategy that you know, okay, these forces will may do this, and so we should build these things that would take advantage of that. Um, so that's an advantage. But this, the things that I didn't get. Um, at all was raising money, you know, uh, that was hard for me to learn. Um, and what investors, because investors don't tell you what they're looking for. <laughs> they may tell you, they may tell you one thing, but that won't be the thing they're really looking for. And then there's a lot of pattern recognition. Let's be honest, Sam Fran is full of Sam, you know, Stanford grads who 
have done Ivy League and, and certain credentials that makes sense to them because in the first 10 years of like the you know 2000 to 2010 that those were the successful people so the shortcut was invest in those people right and whoever they are and of course that's got a little tired recently right because the opportunities have been all played out like it's all been arbed out and those people don't necessarily now have the personal experience they're not necessarily like building for themselves anymore i'm not building for myself for example right building for for a completely different uh, demographic. Uh, I'm not from this country, for example. And so I don't look particularly investable from that context, right? Or nor does current and all the rest of it. And so that's a challenge because you're going to investors who have made a ton of money <laughs> by doing patent recognition and not really thinking about it. And now I suspect they're going to have to uh, adapt that. That theory is actually a lot more work involved. In fact, I think this is not the end of VCs. I think there's going to be a lot more VCs and a lot more uh, private funding, but they're going to have to be more diversified teams from different areas of the country, different backgrounds, solving different problems. That, that's really what I think about their industry. But the, um, but from us, you know, from my personal challenge, that was hard because you know you can only say so many things and people just turn off. Managing was fine. We've done that before. Strategy was fine. Hire, uh, firing is always tough. I, mean, I joined Citibank in 2008. I had to fire a bunch of people who I didn't know. It was terrible. Terrible way to start a job, right? And uh, always struggled with with firing people. So what I ended up, I compensate by um, hiring very slowly. So basically, I hire like I'm really convicted that that person should hang around. And so we have an extremely high uh, retention slash satisfaction score if there is such a thing at current. Uh, and that's mainly born about from my deep desire, lack of desire to fire people. Now, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, MBAs, and, and people work in fintechs of all stages that, that may leave to start a company. What advice would you really give them or what lessons did you wish you really knew back in 2015 before you started this journey? Don't do it. It's crazy. <laughs> Stay away. There's a few, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Don't, yeah, I'm kidding, obviously. But um but like half kidding. If I'd known what I had to do, I thought this was going to be a quick money thing, right? Because I was a trader and I was used to making money and getting paid. And I thought like these tech guys, these tech bros are like idiots and I can do it. And I know what the answer is going to be. What And, and some of that's true, right? But like obviously mainly wrong. And so if you think you are in this for a quick turn because you know that some friends or you read about some dude lady getting rich forget it right this is the biggest risk the biggest risk you'll ever take and if you focus on the money i think jeff bezos said this and there's some quote somewhere and i may be completely lying but like don't be a mercenary be a missionary and it kind of stuck with me because at the beginning i was focusing on money and it was just terrible because like you can't force a business model strategy fund you can't do it it's just it's going to be at its own pace and so if you really then just reorientate yourself and say, all right, I'm going to solve a problem. You've got to solve a problem you kind of care about, right? Because you're going to be stuck with this problem for like 10 years of your life. And so you better you better care about it and genuinely care about it. And so th that's the advice I would give is this is not a get rich quick scheme. In fact, I would wholeheartedly try and tell you to forget about the money. You should always optimize for equity and all these, there's lots of things you should be doing in that. But if you're getting into it for quick, quick bucks, then uh, go and join uh, my old trading outfit, you, you'll still get paid um, or a hedge fund. But you can have outsized remuneration because you're aligned 
with providing massive value on an, an epic scale back to society. That's why there are you know, unfair, crazy outcomes. And so you have to be aligned um, with giving value back. And, and you can't do that by thinking about money or anything like that. It will only hold you back. And so just hope for the best. So solve a problem that you really care about. Uh, work with people. Honestly, like every, um, it's like a marriage, right? It's, you know, not only the people you work with, uh, but your investors, it's like a super tight partnership thing and it can get really messy. And so, you know, I would tell you to over-optimize and be, you know, you met some dude in a dorm room or whatever at a cafe and you both have a great idea and you're going to start, I don't know if that's a great qualifying reason to work together. You should really work on you should really work out whether you guys, girls and guys, whoever it is, can work together and you have complementary skill sets and you have very clear lines of how to work together. Uh, and it goes with the investment uh, people, the first people invest in with you as well. What is their motivation? What do they see in you? Do you like them personally? It becomes very, very EQ very, very quickly. Uh, and, and you'll see this about most business decisions at a higher level. They, the, the numbers are already done. It's all about like character and all these old-fashioned words that may not resonate anymore. And then the other thing I would say is just expect, you know, I was 30, 38, 37 when I started, 38, 38. And so, you know, I had a daughter, now I have a son. It's just not great. You should definitely start earlier. Um, This is the highest risk thing you ever do. You should start as early as possible. Don't wait because you should take all the risk when you're young. Because like when you're my age, you shouldn't really be taking any risks. It's like kind of crazy. And so I would say like, yeah, start yesterday. If you wanted to do this thing, you should you should find out whether you're good at it or not. And also, finally, don't be afraid of failure. I've pr- almost pr- like exclusively hired people who had failed at st- had been at failed startups at the beginning because they were humble. They understood what it meant to really try hard and fail. Most of the time, it was you know there was one piece missing or it was an external factor and just can happen to anyone and and the english are terrible at this by the way they don't handle failure very well but americans are amazing at at this stuff uh that's your that's the american superpower is to jump back up and dust yourself off after failure and and so don't be afraid of it and fail like you know don't fail quickly obviously i know everyone says that don't fail quickly that's a stupid idea but if you do fail learn from it don't let it hurt you too much learn from it get back up and and you know if you've got some time and you're not crazy married with tons of kids go go back at it that's what i'd say that, that's honest candid advice that i don't think young professionals receive enough of right now thank you for that. Uh, and yeah. then in closing uh, we usually like to ask about personal hobbies toward the end of the interview what has been keeping you busy recently and have you picked up any new quarantine hobbies quarantine hobbies well i've I got an insane beard right now so self-grooming has been a thing and i'm not good at it so uh so there's that i have started i bought a kitchen aid never thought I, I pivoted from drinking red wine in the bar and being very social with the team to being a domesticated uh, husband and baking bread like everyone else like i was one of those guys that stole the yeast uh, you know hoarded it uh, from whole foods uh, and it's probably going to stay there for the rest of its shelf life uh, after this quarantine the um and then the other thing it's been fun to do that and and it's kind of you know wholesome and then um I've been doing the New York Times crossword most days, which is, sounds like an old man. It is an old man thing to do. And then I downloaded Call of Duty Warfare, and I was shooting a bunch of 13-year-olds the other day. And I felt that was a lot of fun. 
So your quarantine sounds a lot like a lot of our listeners, it seems. I'm just an older version of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Thank you so much for your time, Stuart. Uh, We really appreciate your insight and coming on the podcast during this pretty hectic time. Of course. It's uh, been great to chat to you guys today and good luck with everything. Great. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.